0: Hey, before we get to this episode of Income Investing, I want to quickly tell you about an online course that I came out with. It's called The Roadmap to Financial Freedom. To make a long story short, I talk about how investors and entrepreneurs can build enough passive income to replace their expenses and become financially independent. If you listen to my podcasts or read my articles, then you already know how thorough I try to be whenever I put out content. I try to give realistic, actionable information that can make a difference in your life. To learn more about the Roadmap to Financial Freedom course, just go to alexisasadinet slash podcast and scroll down to the very bottom of the page. There will be a link to a 2-minute explainer video that you can watch. The course costs under $10 and I explain why it's so inexpensive in that video. Again, it's alexisasadinet slash podcast. That's A-L-E-X-I-S-A-S-S-A-D-I dot net slash podcast. Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode number 16 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is made for the income investor. We focus on investment opportunities that produce cash flow, like real estate investment trusts and rental properties and mortgage funds, credit funds, mortgage lending, syndications, bonds, peer-to-peer lending, tax lien certificates, property crowdfunding, and a whole lot more. Now, These kinds of assets are popular with investors like us for a few reasons. First, they can produce passive income, which can supplement or even replace what you earn from a job or from your business. Second, as we saw above, there's plenty of selection, so you can diversify. Third, you don't always need a lot of money to get started. You can buy many of these investments for just a few hundred dollars. And fourth, a lot of these investments can also appreciate in value, thus providing the best of both worlds. So please remember to subscribe to Income Investing. We're available on iTunes and Stitcher, and on Google Play, and also on SoundCloud. For the last few weeks, we've been discussing mortgages. We're building a foundation for mortgage funds and credit funds, and for bonds and other credit instruments by stepping into the shoes of a lender. So we're addressing mortgages as if we're a bank or a private lender, or a mortgage fund, etc. Now, have you ever wondered how lenders decide how much interest they're going to charge when they make a loan? The average residential mortgage in 2018 goes for around 5%. In the 1980s, it was closer to 20%. So did banks suddenly become a lot nicer? Or why do banks pay so little interest on savings accounts today? Didn't they pay double digits just a few decades ago? You've also probably heard of terms like the United States Federal Reserve, or the Bank of Canada, and interest rates and inflation. Well, all of this ties into a concept that's known as central banking which is crucial for lenders to understand. By the end of this episode, you're going to see that lenders don't really decide how much interest they're going to charge when they make a loan. Somebody else does it for them. Even if you yourself lend money to someone, you're not really in control of the rate that you charge. So that is the topic of today's podcast. What are central banks? How do they affect inflation and interest rates? And why does all of this matter to income investors? Before we get any further, let me quickly say that this episode is sponsored by Pacific Income. Pacific Income provides financing to real estate investors and business owners who are trying to grow. We work with American and Canadian entrepreneurs who have great ideas and lots of work ethic, but just need that extra bit of capital to take them to the next level. If that sounds like you or someone that you know, then please check us out online at packincome.com. That's pacincome.com. That's P A C income.com. Okay, so as usual, we're going to start by addressing a question from one of our listeners. If you have a question or if there's something that you'd like me to revisit, just let me know at alexzasadinet slash podcast. Today's question comes from Nav, who's in Vancouver, my hometown. Nav was wondering what happens if there's a property with two mortgages registered on it, and the second mortgage holder wants to foreclose. This would obviously affect the first mortgagee. So, does it have any power to stop the foreclosure? Nav, thanks for the question. I just want to add some context here. Why would the second creditor want to foreclose if the first one doesn't? Well, there could be a few reasons, but here's the most likely scenario. The borrower has defaulted on the loan to the second creditor, but not to the first. So the lender in the first position may be perfectly happy with the deal. So what happens if the second lender wants its money back? A lot of the times, the creditor in the second position will see if the first creditor will pay off the balance of the debt. In most cases, lenders just want their money back. They'd rather avoid going to court. If the lender ahead of it will pay it out, then that would resolve the issue. It would also presumably expand the value of the borrower's debt to the first lender. If that doesn't happen, then in most cases, yes, the second creditor can foreclose on the property. However, the first lender must be repaid from the proceeds of the foreclosure and the subsequent sale before anything goes to the second lender. As such, the second lender will need to ensure that there's enough equity in the real estate to cover both debts. Alright, so let's briefly recap some of the prior episodes just to make sure that we're all up to speed. We started with the basics of mortgage lending in episode number 10. There we saw that a mortgage itself is not a loan. Instead, it's a legal tool that's used to secure a debt with real estate. It's there for the benefit and for the protection of lenders. A mortgage can prevent a borrower from selling a property without paying the proceeds to its creditor. If and when the property is sold, the loans will be repaid in chronological order. The first mortgage is paid first, the second mortgage is paid second, and so forth. So the lower down on the ladder you are, the more risk there is. However, if the property isn't worth enough to cover the value of the mortgage, then the lender may not be able to recoup its capital. It'll have to seek payment from the borrower's other assets, which can be significantly more challenging. For that reason, it's important to lend at an appropriate loan to value ratio, or LTV. In episode 11, we talked about why mortgage loans can be attractive passive income investments. In sum, They are loans that are backed up by real estate. They can generate income every month from interest payments and origination fees, and also in late payment penalties. And in most cases, the borrower will incur the lender's costs of hiring a lawyer to put it all together. We follow that by exploring some of the main risks of mortgage lending in episode 12. We noted that they can be difficult to sell, and they can suffer if the borrower stops making interest payments. As well, it's possible for a lender to lose money before even making a loan. That's called origination risk. The next week, we discussed managing both default risk and origination risk. We then spent an entire episode looking at how to limit liquidity risk. We talked about selling loans to other investors in the debt market in order to free up cash for lenders. And, last week, we took a deeper dive into the debt market. We discussed how loans can rise and fall in value. We also introduced terms that apply to bonds, like face value and coupon and yield. All of that allows us to segue into central banks, which is the topic of today's discussion. These institutions are important to all investors because they have the power to heat up and to cool down the economy but they're especially pertinent for lenders and anyone who participates in the debt markets. So, let's start from the top. What is a central bank? A central bank is a bank that's owned by the government. But it's different from other agencies and other ministries because it conducts policy independently of the executive branch. Their orders come from within. Not from above. Central banks are organized in this fashion to help insulate them from politics. As such, their half government, half independent status, coupled with the amount of power they have, makes them a favorite target for conspiracy theorists. People, especially online, fantasize about a shadowy group of central bankers who are controlling the world's wealth. It makes for some really good fiction. Unfortunately, they are a little bit less interesting in reality. Central banks' responsibilities can vary per country, but they're usually charged with performing a few duties. First, to promote employment. Second, to maintain stable prices and control inflation. And third, to encourage a well regulated and efficient banking system. Basically, the mandate of a central bank is to make sure that the economy does well. Most countries have some version of a central bank. In the US, it's the Federal Reserve. In Canada, it's the Bank of Canada, not to be confused with the Royal Bank of Canada, or RBC. The central bank for the euro is the European Central Bank. In Australia, it's the Reserve Bank of Australia. In China, it's the People's Bank of China. In the UK, it's the Bank of England. And in South Africa, it's the South African Reserve Bank. Central banks have several tools at their disposal to impact the economy. The one that we're going to zone in on today is their ability to influence interest rates. Now, before we get any further, I want to clarify that we're going to discuss two types of interest rates today. First, there's the rate of interest that regular banks pay whenever they borrow money. And second, there's the rate that everyone else borrows at. That's known as the prevailing interest rate. Central banks have the power to influence banks' interest rates, which triggers a domino effect throughout the economy. I'm not going to get into the technicalities of how they do this because they all have their own methods. For instance, you might have heard of terms like quantitative easing and the prime rate or the discount rate or the overnight rate. For our purposes, let's leave it at that central banks can demand or strongly encourage regular banks to pay a certain amount of interest whenever they borrow money. Now, let's move away from central banks for a moment and talk about regular commercial banks, the type that you and I bank with. These banks are the cornerstone of our economy for two reasons. First, they give us a safe place to deposit our savings, so we don't need to keep our cash under a mattress. Second, they are the world's largest provider of loans. They give mortgages and lines of credit and credit cards to billions of people and businesses internationally. Here's why that's so important. Much of the economy is financed by borrowing money. It's a huge part of how we create wealth. It's also a sign of optimism and productivity and creativity. For example, a business that borrows money to develop a new technology is essentially predicting that it's going to invent a good product. One day, that product is going to be useful and beneficial to people, so the business is going to be able to sell it to its customers. When it sells the product, it'll make money. In fact, it'll make enough money to pay back the loan, plus to generate a profit. And that profit was only possible because the business was able to borrow money. But that's just profit in a monetary sense. Everything we use from housing to the internet to food to transportation to space exploration to smartphones and GPS and plumbing and toothbrushes and even cancer medication was either invented by or improved upon by businesses. Most of those companies at one point or another had to borrow money to finance their growth. Without having access to credit, we wouldn't have most of the goods and the services and the technologies that currently exist our quality of life would be significantly worse. Think about the biggest purchase that most people will ever make, a home. They're going to pay for 80 or 90 or 95% of it with a mortgage loan. Without credit, almost nobody could afford to buy a house. The same goes for cars and college degrees and anything that you could put on a credit card. Loans give us the power to invest in the future, and they give people money to spend. That benefits businesses, which create jobs and put food on people's plates. As much as we love to hate banks, they are responsible for most of the credit in the world. We could not have an economy without them. However, banks themselves also have to borrow money. Each day, they are legally required to have a certain amount of liquidity. For example, they need to have enough cash just in case people want to pull out some of their savings. It's also necessary for their own financial stability. If banks don't have enough cash, then they can borrow it from other banks, or directly from the central bank in some cases. And this is where central banks exercise a lot of their power. They set the minimum interest rate that commercial banks have to pay whenever commercial banks have to borrow money and this triggers a chain reaction across the entire economy. For example, if commercial banks are allowed to borrow money at 1% interest, then they're most likely going to give mortgages and credit cards and lines of credit to their customers at a higher rate than that. Otherwise, they're going to lose money. As such, a person with great credit might get a mortgage at 3%. That way, the bank makes a 2% spread. But if the bank had to borrow money at 5%, then that same client would likely get a mortgage at 7% interest. However, that high of a rate may not be affordable for the client. She might then have to think twice about buying a home. If less people are able to buy homes, then there will be less business for construction companies. They in turn will purchase less equipment from tractor and crane manufacturers and those manufacturers will buy less iron and wood and steel from commodity suppliers. The cycle will continue throughout the economy. Everything will begin to cool off. As such, central banks use the interest rate that they make commercial banks pay to influence the broader economy. If they want to heat up the economy, they'll encourage people and businesses to borrow money by lowering interest rates. If they want to slow down growth, they'll raise interest rates and make it more expensive to borrow. Now, why would a central bank ever want to slow down economic growth? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? Well, as the economy expands, things start to get more expensive. For example, if a lot of people are able to get mortgage loans, then more people will buy houses. As the demand for housing increases, it becomes more valuable and therefore more expensive. This is called price inflation, or just inflation. A little bit of inflation is generally considered positive. It's almost like a lubricant for the economy to help it expand. When people complain that a bottle of Coke used to be cheaper 10 years ago, they don't realize that the price is actually supposed to rise. Most central banks want prices to increase by about 2 or 3% each year. But it can be destructive if inflation goes beyond that especially if people's wages don't keep pace. The classic example of rampant inflation occurred in Zimbabwe. In 2008, that country's rate of inflation was 80 billion percent. If you bought a loaf of bread in 2007, a year later, it would have cost 80 billion percent more. It's obviously impossible for an economy to function under those conditions. Therefore, central banks try to maintain a balance. They want the economy to grow, but not fast enough to make inflation a threat. They do this by either making it more or less expensive for commercial banks to borrow money. For instance, when the 2008 recession occurred, the US Federal Reserve decreased rates to almost 0% interest. The chairman at the time, Ben Bernanke, did everything in his power to get banks to lend money to people and businesses. He needed the economy to grow. However, we're no longer in recession today. The economy is strong. Central banks therefore want people to continue to borrow, but just not as much. So they've slightly raised interest rates. Mortgages and credit cards and lines of credit are now a little bit more expensive in 2018 than they were in 2016. That means people aren't able to borrow as much money. So why does all of this matter to income investors? Well, investments that have a borrower-lender component, like mortgage loans and bonds and by default, mortgage funds and bond funds and credit funds, all respond to what commercial banks do. If banks started charging more interest, then everyone else will too. This happens for two reasons. First, in most cases, banks are the lowest risk lenders. So if you borrow money from a non-bank lender, whether it's through an investment fund or a bond offering or even an individual private lender, it's going to want to be compensated for the risk that it's taking. Thus, the interest rate is likely going to be higher. If a bank gives commercial real estate loans at 6%, a non-bank lender might then do it for 10%. Nobody's going to take more risk than a bank and charge less interest for it. But if the bank's own borrowing rate increases, then it's going to charge more for its loans. So a commercial real estate loan might start going for 8%. Non-bank lenders will then raise their rates too. They might charge 12%. The market always reacts to what the banks do. And the banks react to the policies that are put in by central banks. Second, many non-bank lenders borrow money from banks themselves. A billion dollar mortgage fund might have a $200 million dollar line of credit from a bank. If the fund is borrowing at 5% interest, it's going to probably lend out money at at least 7%. But if the bank rate goes up, then the fund will have to adjust its rates too. Otherwise, it could start losing money. So, this is what I meant when I said at the beginning of the podcast that you're not really in control of the interest rate that you charge when you lend money. Whether you know it or not, you're always going to take your cues from the bank if you're lending money to earn a profit. Thus, when bank rates rise, it impacts the cost of borrowing for everyone. Companies that borrow money by issuing bonds, to entrepreneurs seeking mortgage financing, to businesses that need operating loans, to people using credit cards, will all pay more interest. And that means that lenders can make more money. Now, you'll recall from the last couple of episodes that lenders can sell their loan contracts. They can do so in private sales or on a formal market, like an OTC exchange. Therefore, the price of contracts can rise or fall based on how interested investors are in buying them. Last week, we used the example of a broker selling $20 million worth of promissory notes for $21 million. Those loans were made by a fund, called ABC Mortgage Fund and they had a 10-year term and an annual interest rate of 11%. But think about what would happen if the banks started making really safe residential mortgage loans at 11% interest. So even their best clients would have to start borrowing at that rate. Every non-bank lender on the planet would increase their rates too. So a private commercial real estate loan might start going for 20% interest. All of a sudden, ABC Mortgage Fund's promissory notes don't look so attractive. Why would investors buy into loans that pay 11% when they can invest in others that would pay twice as much? If nobody's interested in them, the broker trying to sell ABC Mortgage Fund's loans would probably have to drop their price. He might have to sell $20 million worth of loans for $17 million. This phenomenon will occur across the entire debt market. All loans that were issued before the interest rate increased will be seen as less valuable. Newer loans come with a higher rate, so they're more attractive. That's why when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. As such, rising interest rates can be good for new loans, but bad for existing ones. Of course, the reverse is also true. Let's say that banks are borrowing at 9%. They're giving their best clients loans at 10%. You manage a mortgage fund. You're lending to commercial real estate developers at 20% interest for an average term of 5 years. The next year, the rates drop dramatically. Banks start borrowing at 1%. They're now lending at 2%. And private real estate loans are going for 12%. Your promissory notes are going to go way up in value if you ever wanted to sell them. Investors are going to jump on them because they're paying almost double the normal rate. Your loans were made before interest rates dropped, and they're still going to earn 20% interest for the next four years. So, with this in mind, how much of a risk do interest rate increases pose to income investments? Well, first, central banks usually boost rates gradually. They know that if they do so too quickly, it'll shock the market and can hurt investors. Under normal conditions, it would be rare to see rates jump from 2% to 5%. Going from 2% to 2.25% and then to 2.5% would be more likely. Therefore, the impact shouldn't be so drastic. Second, investors can make a reasonable estimation about where rates are headed. If the economy is growing and there are signs of inflation you can then assume that rates are going to rise at some point in the future. When the Fed raised its rate last week, it was the seventh time in three years. Nobody had a heart attack from shock. You might not get the exact time and the exact amount, but you can probably hit it within the ballpark, so you can prepare well in advance. As such, investments will often be priced in ahead of time. If people think that bonds are going to fall in value because of an upcoming hike, then bonds will fall in value. So when the hike happens, bonds will have already fallen in value. If they decline a lot more after that, it could be a great buying opportunity for investors. Third, not all income investments have the same interest rate risk. A loan with a 3-month maturity date probably won't be impacted much. There's a good chance that the money will be repaid before the rate hike even occurs. However, a 10-year loan could very well be affected. The interest rate might rise dozens of times within a decade. By the time the loan matures, its rate might barely compete with what a savings account pays. Therefore, looking at the term of the loan is an important part of due diligence. Whether you invest directly into a mortgage, or you buy into a mortgage fund or any sort of loan fund, you should always look at how long the loans will be outstanding for. If a fund owns a lot of long-term loans, then it will be subject to higher interest rate risk. Now, lenders can manage interest rate risk in two ways. First, they can stick to short-term loans. For example, Pacific Income never lends for longer than three years exactly for that reason. We're even working on a deal right now that's only for three months. Second, lenders can issue loans with floating interest rates they might choose a benchmark plus a certain amount of interest. For instance, instead of lending at 10%, they might lend at the federal funds rate plus 9%. So when the federal funds rate increases, so does the rate of the loan. It's always floating plus 9%. That's how banks manage interest rate risk, because most of their loans are made for the long term. Their loans will usually come at prime plus 2% or prime plus 5%, instead of at a fixed rate. So if the bank's borrowing costs go up, they can pass them on to their customers. Okay, so that wraps up central banks for today. However, I just want to go on a quick tangent for a few minutes. Have you ever heard people say, or maybe you even remember yourself, that back in the day they could put their money into a savings account and earn 10% interest? often complain at how cheap banks have become and how great things used to be. Well, in fact, it's not that banks are cheap. It's just the way of the market. To understand why, I want to quickly explore a concept called fractional reserve banking. Now, at their core, banks are deposit-taking institutions. They offer you a safe place to store your cash. In most countries, the government guarantees the preservation of at least part of your savings. But once they've got your money, what do banks do with all that cash? Well, you might be surprised to learn that the money doesn't actually sit in your account. Banks lend out up to 90% of their customer savings. For instance, when you put money on your credit card, you're really just using the cash from other people's savings accounts to pay for a purchase. The bank has effectively loaned you money from other depositors' accounts. The same goes for mortgages and lines of credit and other financing products. This is fractional reserve banking. Banks do this under the assumption that not every saver is going to want to withdraw their money at once. If people do so, it's known as a bank run. That's a really bad thing. It usually happens when people have lost faith in their financial system and they would rather keep their cash under a mattress. So to entice people to open savings accounts, banks will pay interest on whatever monies are deposited. Again, they're going to lend out your savings at a rate that's higher than what they pay you in interest. If central banks have made it cheap for commercial banks to borrow money, then commercial banks will give low interest loans to their customers. But since they're lending at a low rate, then the interest that they pay on savings accounts will also be low. Banks aren't going to pay 10% interest on savings deposits when they're only lending at 4%. That's a quick way to crash a business. However, if central banks have made it expensive for commercial banks to borrow, then commercial banks will lend at higher rates. Since they're charging more interest on their loans, there's now more to pay to depositors. As such, when people were earning double digits on their savings accounts in the late 20th century, Inflation was also high. For instance, it reached 13.5% in the US in 1980. That's seven times as high as it should be. Central banks tried to cool down the economy by raising the rates at which commercial banks could borrow. The US Fed raised the prime rate to above 20%. That means that banks gave mortgage loans to their best clients at over 20% interest per year. When you're lending at that rate, there's obviously more room to pay interest on people's savings. Since inflation is low today, central banks are keeping interest rates low. Therefore, commercial banks are giving low interest loans, and there's less to pay for deposits. Inflation, interest rates, and savings accounts are all interconnected. So that's the end of our discussion. Next Wednesday, we're going to look at who borrows money from non-bank or private lenders. A lot of people view private financing as a space that's occupied by loan sharks. But there's actually a thriving market of regular corporate and personal borrowers. Until then, if you could take a moment to give this podcast a good rating on iTunes or whichever platform you're listening on, I'd be grateful. That'll help me get the word out there. Thanks for your time and for your support, and I'll talk to you in a few days.